You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Almighty Father, we thank you for this time together and these people who have gathered to study and consider your holy word. And we ask that you would use it to illuminate our paths and guide us to thee. These things we ask in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. I saw something last week that surprised me a bit. It has been almost 25 years since the release of the movie Forrest Gump. 25 years, it seems much shorter than that. And certainly too short for a movie to have been so become such a part of our culture as that movie has. You probably everybody in this room can quote a line or two from that movie. And I realized that I cited the movie a few weeks ago uh, in connection with uh, a point made in this class. I read about this in a commentary that was part movie review and part reflection on our culture and the point of view of the writer was that when the movie was first released in the 1990s that Forrest Gump's story was seen as just sort of a sweet love story the um, simple fellow who's upright and who does the right thing and eventually everybody who comes in contact with him is is changed for the better and he winds up with the girl in the end and maybe that was the way in the 1990s our culture would look at something like that we were at the end of the cold war we were in this period that some historians call post history and everything looked sunny but 25 years later that is not the cultural moment that we find ourselves in and this writer took the view that it's actually a pretty dark story and very cynical. And in this telling of the story, Forrest Gump is not heroic on the battlefield because he's not smart enough to know that he's in terrible danger. He's a sports star, but only because he grew up having to run away from bullies. He's successful in the shrimping business only because every other shrimp boat got destroyed in the hurricane. He's treated as a sage, some sort of a modern um, um, uh, spiritual guru, and all he wants to do is to run back and forth across the country. And the, the aspirations of the more normal characters, like Lieutenant Dan and uh, Bubba Blue, come to nothing. They, they wind up in the ashes in Forrest Gump through... Absolutely no agency of his own winds up rich and famous and well-regarded. And the only reason he gets the girl in the end is that she knows she's dying and he's the father of her son. That's a very dark way to look at it, but there's one thing that's absolutely undeniable about that story, and that is that from Forrest Gump's point of view, none of his success means anything. Uh, the, the riches and the fame and the adulation 
And even the friendships don't mean anything to him because all he really wants is to be with Jenny. And when he finally winds up with Jenny, it's short and it's bittersweet. And in a way, that sort of could be the story of the book of Ecclesiastes. That life is very unpredictable and that our best laid plans often come to nothing. And even when we're successful, it's more because of chance than anything else. And I think that this is reinforced by the image at the beginning of the movie and the end of the movie. You probably remember what it is, that tiny white feather that's blowing around in the air. The feather is moved around by forces having nothing to do with itself. It's completely external to the feather. And the feather can no more go where it wants to than Forrest Gump can wind up where he wants to be. And that's not a bad metaphor for vanity in the context of the book of Ecclesiastes. Hevel in the Hebrew, a puff of smoke, futility, uh, vanity. Through most of the book of Ecclesiastes, the writer who calls himself the preacher, Kohelet in Hebrew, takes a very deist point of view stipulating that there is a divine creator of the universe, but leaving open the question about whether that creator cares or whether he's indifferent to what his creation does. But toward the, toward the end of the passages that we've been reading, he starts to show his hand. He starts to show what he really thinks. At the end of chapter 10, remember we read last week, he said, Eat and drink and be merry and enjoy your time with the spouse that you love because these things have been approved by God. These are God's gifts. Like our life itself, it's going to go away. These gifts will not be here forever, but while they're here, we enjoy them because they are from God. And now we start to see that this Wisdom and pleasure that he considered all the way back in chapter 2 and decided were not fulfilling, we see wisdom and pleasure through a little bit of a different lens. Wisdom is not the worldly wise man who's the know-it-all who looks down on the world with this detached sort of superior, superior air. Rather, the wise man is the one, the wisdom, the true wisdom is the one who knows himself and who realizes that he is not supreme in the world, but there is something bigger than himself. And pleasure in the right relationship is something that comes from God. And we never take our eyes off the fact that there is there is plenty of misfortune in the world, but the pleasure is also part of the world, and it's God's gift. And so, understanding pleasure and wisdom in their right context, we begin to see that maybe they are fulfilling if we keep them in perspective. Now we are in the last two chapters of the preacher's exegesis. And these are some really, really 
good bits of advice that flow from where we ended last week. I'd like to start in chapter 11 and read verses 1 through 6. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a serving to seven and also to eight, for you do not know what evil will be on the earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it shall lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know what is the way of the wind, or how the bones grow in the womb of her who is with child, so you do not know the works of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed. In the evening do not withhold your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, either this or that, or whether both alike will be good. The commentator Derek Kidner refers to this passage as the advice to live boldly, understanding where we belong. The writer says that the one who stands around and watches the natural world and who considers considers what's going on and who waits for the proper moment will never get around to sowing. So carpe diem, seize it, get to work. That's the... Um, the, the, the reference to the tree falling and the and the clouds emptying out and raining and uh, and the uh, the wind blowing is um, a reminder that the conditions are not always what we expect them to be, but to live fully, we push past those conditions and we just go at it. This is what's flowing from the eat, drink, and be merry that we ended on last week. After the 50th anniversary of the sub-four-minute mile, I read an interview with Sir Roger Bannister, who was a great man, who was a man in full, and a man who would be worthy of our admiration even if he had never broken the four-minute mile. But Sir Roger was telling the story that his team and he had worked out a perfect plan for running a sub four minute mile. It wasn't an open race. It was rather a laboratory mile against the clock. And each one of the laps had a pace man who was going to pull him along according to a certain pace. And then in the, in the fourth lap, he was going to be on his own. And the plan was perfectly laid. And yet the day of the, of the big event, it was terrible weather. It stormed and it rained hard and the wind blew and before the appointed hour the the rain cleared and the sun came out but the wind was still blowing so hard that Bannister said that you could see the flags almost standing straight out from the flagpole. Obviously it was terrible condition to be running a sub four minute mile when nobody had ever done it before but Bannister said I thought if an Englishman is ever going to achieve anything in this life, he'd best not wait on the weather. And so off they went. And he ran the sub four-minute mile. That's the same advice that the preacher gives here. Seize the day. Don't stand around waiting. Live boldly. I'd like to now look at the next passage, uh, verses 7 through 10 of chapter 11, where he's going to build upon what advice he just gave. 
Truly the light is sweet. It is pleasant for the eyes to behold the sun. But if a man... Let me start over. Truly the light is sweet. It is pleasant for the eyes to behold the sun. But if a man lives many years and rejoices in them all, yet let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. All that is coming is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these, God will bring you into judgment. Therefore, remove sorrow from your heart and put away evil from your flesh. For childhood and youth are vanity. Just as he gave the advice to eat and to drink and to enjoy life and to revel in the love of your marriage with your spouse, He's also saying, while you're young, enjoy it, because it won't last. He says, take joy in living fully. And the commentator says that this passage could be summed up, live joyfully. Take joy in your life and be righteous, but remember that God is going to bring everything into judgment. And I think it's important that he focuses on doing this in your youth. It's easy when, well, easy, when times are bad, when you get close to the end of your life, when you're much closer to the end of your life than you were to the beginning, and you, you wonder, where did all the years go? Where were those little children who now have their own children? What? What became of all those years in the middle? And why didn't I squeeze everything out of them when I could? But it's, it's that moment in life when our minds turn to the eternal and to the end. And his advice, the preacher's advice here is, think about the eternal when you're young. It's harder to do. It's easy to think when you're young. I know it was for me to think that everything is sunshine and roses and that everything is possible. But remember, he says, you will have days when uh, there will be many the days of darkness. The sunshine is in the beginning and the darkness will come. And what you are living now is vanity. It's futility. If you put all of your eggs in that basket, you will come to grief. By the way, I meant to point out at the beginning of the reading, Cast Your Bread Upon the Waters, there's another one of those timeless expressions that have come into our culture. And we have them all through the book of Ecclesiastes. This is kind of the last one that that I'm going to point out. But I understand cast your bread upon the waters in this context to mean do business with everybody you meet. Deal with everybody you run into because who knows? Who knows what's going to come of it? Who knows that you might not touch somebody really importantly in the way that you deal with them because as Bear Bryant once said, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. And that's sort of the same advice that he ends chapter 7 with. 
that you should, from the very beginning of your life, live joyfully, live joyously, live with an understanding that it's all going to be at an end one day. And you don't want to look back on it and say, I wish, I only wish I'd done something differently. Youth is a gift. When it's gone, don't waste any grief on it, but enjoy it while you've got it and be sober about what it means. Because in the end, God will bring everything into judgment. Chapter 12 is where the preacher ends his survey about the meaning of life and the meaning of our place in the world. And it is one of the most beautiful passages that I believe I've ever read. And I hope that you agree with me. I'm going to read it now. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. And before I read it, I'll say that the... Uh, that. Professor Kidner, the commentator, summarizes this as live godly. Chapter 12 in the first verse. Remember now your Creator in the days of your youth, before the difficult days come, and the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them. While the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are not darkened, and the clouds do not return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men bow down, when the grinders cease because they are few, and those that look through the windows grow dim, when the doors are shut in the streets and the sound of grinding is low, when one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of music are brought low, also, they are afraid of height and terrors in the way. When the almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper is a burden and desire fails. For man goes to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. Remember your creator before the silver cord is loosed or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the well. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. That may sound depressing, but it's surpassingly beautiful as art. I could almost hear it as a lyrical poem set to music. The imagery is a little thick in places. We could get ourselves so wrapped up in the metaphor that we lose the big picture, but my commentary says that the reference to the almond tree blossoming is that the almond tree's blossoms are white, and that might be a, a mental image of white hair. And the reference to the grasshopper moving slowly or crawling with a burden is, uh, again, a grasshopper is one of those insects that flits lightly and goes a long way, but at the end is barely able to move. And the, 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 the daughters of music may be a reference to songbirds who no longer sing. And the reference to fear of heights may be the unsteadiness that an older person feels 
trying to walk and needing a cane or a walker and terrors may be bad dreams or they may be dementia, but we don't get so wrapped up in the metaphor that we lose sight of the big picture. What he's describing here is the image of a great house that's now kind of fallen into disrepair and is no longer full of people but has a few people in it, and that's all. Where it used to bustle, now it's quiet. Or like a community that once was thriving but now has kind of fallen on hard times and no longer thrives and very few people live and most of the storefronts are shut up and most of the um, the residences are, are are boarded up and no longer occupied and are vacant. And that applies to us. The image of the great house that's fallen into disrepair and the and the bustling community that's no longer lively is the same as we will experience. We get to the end of our lives and we have no pleasure in it. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshoppers a burden and desire fails. Not just physical desire but also our enjoyment of the good things in life. Food no longer interests us or anything that we used to do that we enjoyed with our grandchildren or we enjoyed on our own. It loses its appeal. This is the nature of life. This is the 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 slowing down, the turning down of the volume, the end of the road. And yet, it's so beautifully rendered. And the preacher is saying, twice he says it, remember your Creator. And I don't think he's saying remember it in the sense of, you know, keep in mind that there's God here. It's not remember like don't forget. It's remember like never take your eyes off of the Creator. From the days of your youth until the end of your life. As we Christians might say, keep your eye on the cross. And here the, the, uh, the preacher is, is saying, don't ever get out of your mind that you are a created being of the divine creator. Drop your human pretense of self-sufficiency and fix your attention on God and never let it go. I don't think we want to take too much and read into this because the preacher is not promising life everlasting. That's that's for us. That's for other parts of the Bible and that's for those of us on this side of the empty tomb. But I do think that in the in the passage the dust will return to the earth as it was. This is verse 7, by the way. The dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. When we think about dust returning to the earth, we remember the book of Genesis and what God said to Adam and Eve. Dust you are, and dust you shall return. It's the, it's, it's the reminder that we get every year at... Uh, at Ash Wednesday, dust thou are, and dust thou shalt return. The earth, the dust will return to the earth as it was, but the spirit will return to God who gave it. 
if we don't read salvation into that from the preacher, we still read into that or out of that the purpose that God created us for. Remember back in chapter 2, he put eternity into our hearts. He put it there for a reason. And when the Spirit returns to God, we get the impression that the preacher, while he's not offering the hope of salvation or everlasting life, he's expressing a confidence in the Creator that the Creator will take care of this. He gave us the Spirit. The Spirit will go back to the one who gave it, and he'll take care of it. So the preacher ends his long survey this way. Chapter 12, verses 9 to the end. And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find acceptable words, and what was written was upright, words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. And further, my son, be admonished by these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is wearisome to the flesh. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Little note about making many books there is no end. I think what the preacher is saying is that too much intellectualizing of all of this is to lose the point. We can always, always look for one more answer, one more question to ask, and one more answer to seek that will lead to the next question. But he's brought it to the end and said, this is what it all comes down to. Fear the Lord and keep his commandments. He makes a point about words of truth. And we remember the words of St. John. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So in a way, the preacher is reminding us of the ultimate truth. This preacher who, as we hear in the epistle this morning, can only see as through a, dark, a glass darkly, can nevertheless see that one day we will see absolute truth. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. Or another way to put that is this is our whole duty. This is the reason we are here. I think that at the end we come to see the preacher's attitude is knowing that the Creator is loving and that the Creator loves us and cares for us and gives us good things and good gifts. And he does take an interest in what happens to us. He is not indifferent. God will bring every work into judgment, 
including every secret thing, whether good or evil. We remember the words of our Lord in one of his most famous parables, where the master takes an account of what the servant has done and says, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Come in and enjoy my pleasure. So this is the whole duty of man, to love God and to keep his commandments. We may hope for the day when we hear, Well done, my good and faithful servant. And we remember the question that the preacher asked at the beginning of his book, Does anything matter under the sun? And we realize that the answer is yes. Everything matters under the sun. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.